Section 37 of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kara Schallenberg. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrop. Section 37. George the Fourth. George the Fourth. Reigned ten years. 1820-1830. Born 1762. Married 1795. Caroline of Brunswick. Out of the many fashion books of this time I have chosen, from a little brown book in front of me, a description of the fashions for ladies during one part of 1827. It will serve to show how mere man, blundering on the many complexities of the feminine passion for dress, I was going to say clothes, may find himself left amid a froth of frills, high and dry, except for a whiff of spray, standing in his unromantic garments on the shore of the great world of gauze and gussets, while the most noodle-headed girl sails gracefully away upon the high seas to pirate some new device of the devil or Paris. Our wives, bless them, occasionally treat us to a few bewildering terms, hoping by their gossamer knowledge to present to our gaze a mental picture of a new, adorable, ardently desired hat. Perhaps those nine proverbial tailors, who go to make the one proverbial man, least of his sex, might, by a strenuous effort, confine the history of clothes during this reign into a compact literature of forty volumes. It would be indecent, as undecorous as the advertisements in ladies' papers, to attempt to fathom the language of the man who endeavoured to read the monumental effigy to the vanity of human desire for adornment. But is it adornment? Nowadays to be dressed well is not always the same thing as to be well-dressed. Often it is far from it. The question of modern clothes is one of great perplexity. It seems that what is beauty one year may be the abomination of desolation the next, because the trick of that beauty has become common property. You puff your hair at the sides. You are in the true sanctum of the mode. You puff your hair at the sides. You are for ever utterly cast out, as one having no understanding. I shall not attempt to explain it. It passes beyond the realms of explanation into the pure air of truth. The truth is simple. Aristocracy being no longer real, but only a cult, one is afraid of one's servants. Your servant puffs her hair at the sides, and, hang it, she becomes exactly like an aristocrat. Our servant, having dropped her G's for many years, as well as her H's, it behooved us to pronounce our G's and our H's. Our servants, having learned our English, it became necessary for us to drop our G's. We seem at present unwilling in the matter of the H, but that will come. To cut the cackle and come to the clothes-horse, let me say that the bunglement of clothes which passes all comprehension in King George the Fourth's reign, is best explained by my cuttings from the book of one who apparently knew. Let the older writer have his, or her, 
fling in his or her words. Currency Remarks on the Last New Fashions The City of London is now indeed most splendid in its buildings and extent. London is carried into the country, but never was it more deserted. A very, very few years ago, and during the summer, the dresses of the wives and daughters of our opulent tradesmen would furnish subjects for the investigators of fashion. Now, if those who chance to remain in London take a day's excursion of about eight or ten miles distance from the metropolis, they hear the innkeepers deprecating the steamboats, by which they declare they are almost ruined. On Sundays, which would sometimes bring them the clear profits of ten or twenty pounds, they now scarce produce ten shillings. No, those of the middle class belonging to Cockney Island must leave town, though the days are short, and even getting cold and comfortless, the steamboats carrying them off by shoals to Margate and its vicinity. The pursuit after elegant and superior modes of dress must carry us farther. It is now from the rural retirement of the country seats belonging to the noble and wealthy that we must collect them. Young ladies wear their hair well arranged, but not quite with the simplicity that prevailed last month. During the warmth of the summer months, the braids across the forehead were certainly the best, but now, when neither in fear of heat or damp, the curls again appear in numerous clusters round the face, and some young ladies, who seem to place their chief pride in a fine head of hair, have such a multitude of small ringlets that give to what is a natural charm all the poodle-like appearance of a wig. The bows of hair are elevated on the summit of the head, and confined by a comb of tortoise-shell. Caps of the cornet kind are much in fashion, made of blonde, and ornamented with flowers or puffs of coloured gauze. Most of the cornets are small, and tie under the chin, with a bow on one side of white satin ribbon. Those which have ribbons or gauze lappets floating loose have them much shorter than formerly. A few dress-hats have been seen at dinner-parties and musical amateur meetings in the country, of transparent white crepe, ornamented with a small, elegant bouquet of marabones. When these dress-hats are of coloured crepe, they are generally ornamented with flowers of the same tint as the hat, in preference to feathers. Printed muslins and chintzes are still very much worn in the morning walks, with handsome sashes, having three ends depending down each side, not much beyond the hips. With one of these dresses we saw a young lady wear a rich black satin pelerine, handsomely trimmed, with a very beautiful black blonde. It had a very neat effect, as the dress was light. White muslin dresses, though they are always worn partially in the country till the winter actually commences, are now seldom seen except on the young, the embroidery on these dresses is exquisite. Dresses of Indian red, either in taffety or chintz, have already made their appearance, and are expected to be much in favour the ensuing winter. The chintzes have much black in their patterns, but this light material will, in course, be soon laid aside for silks, and these, like the taffeties which have partially appeared, will no doubt be plain. With these dresses was worn a canazon spencer, with long sleeves of white muslin, 
trimmed with narrow lace. Gros de Naples dresses are very general, especially for receiving dinner parties and for friendly evening society. At private dances, the only kind of ball that has at present taken place, are worn dresses of the white-figured gauze over white satin or gros de Naples. At the theatricals sometimes performed by noble amateurs, the younger part of the audience, who do not take a part, are generally attired in very clear muslin, over white satin, with drapery scarves of lace, barege, or thick embroidered tulle. Cashmere shawls, with a white ground and a pattern of coloured flowers or green foliage, are now much worn in outdoor costumes, especially for the morning walk. The mornings being rather chilly, these warm envelopes are almost indispensable. We are sorry, however, to find our modern bells so tardy in adopting those coverings, which ought now to succeed to the light appendages of summer costume. The muslin canazone spencer, the silk fichu, and even the lighter barege are frequently the sole additions to a high dress, or even to one but partially so. We have lately seen finished to the order of a lady of rank in the county of Suffolk a very beautiful pelisse of jonquil-coloured gros de Naples. It fastens close down from the throat to the feet in front with large covered buttons. At a suitable distance on each side of this fastening are three bias folds, rather narrow, brought close together under the belt, and enlarging as they descend to the border of the skirt. A large pelerine cape is made to take on and off, and the bust from the back of each shoulder is ornamented with the same bias folds, forming a stomacher in front of the waist. The sleeves, a la Marie, are puckered a few inches above the wrist, and confined by three straps, each with a large button. Though long ends are very much in favour with silk pelerines, yet there are quite as many that are quite round, such was the black satin pelerine we cited above. Coloured bonnets are now all the rage. We are happy to say that some, though all too large, are in the charming cottage style, and are modestly tied under the chin. Some bonnets are so excessively large that they are obliged to be placed quite at the back of the head, and as their extensive brims will not support a veil, when they are ornamented with a broad blonde, the edge of that just falls over the hair, but does not even conceal the eyes. Leghorn hats are very general. Their trimmings consist chiefly of ribbons, though some ladies add a few branches of green foliage between the bows or puffs. These are chiefly of the fern. A great improvement to these green branches is the having a few wild roses intermingled. The most admired colours are lavender, esterhazy, olive-green, lilac, marshmallow-blossom, and Indian red. At rural fates the ornaments of the hats generally consist of flowers. These hats are backward in the Arcadian fashion, and discover a wreath of small flowers on the hair, expandeau. In Paris the most admired colours are ethereal blue, hortensia, camelopard yellow, pink, grass-green, jonquil, and parma violet. September 1, 1827 Really, this little fashion-book is very charming. It recreates, for me, the elegant, simpering ladies. It gives, in its style, 
just that artificial note which conjures this age of ladies with hats, in the charming cottage style, modestly tied under the chin. They had the complete art of languor, these dear creatures. They lisped Italian, and were fine needlewomen. They painted weak little landscapes. Nooks or arbours found them dreaming of a Gothic revival. They were all this and more, but through this sweet envelope the delicate refined souls shone. They were true women, often great women. Their loops of hair, their camelopard pelerines, shall not rob them of immortality, cannot destroy their softening influence, which permeated even the outrageous dandyism of the men of their time, and steered the three-bottle gentlemen, their husbands, and our grandfathers, into a grand old age which we reverence to-day and wonder at, seeing them as giants against our nerve-shattered, drug-taking generation. As for the men, look at the innumerable pictures, and collect, for instance, the material for a colossal work upon the stock ties of the time. Run your list of varieties into some semblance of order. Commence with the varieties of Macassar-Brown stocks. Pass on to patent leather stocks. Take your man for a walk, and cause him to pass a window full of Hibernian stocks. Let him discourse on the stocks worn by turf enthusiasts, and, when you are approaching the end of your twenty-third volume, give a picture of a country dinner-party, and end your work with a description of the gentlemen under the table being relieved of their stocks by the faithful family butler. End of section 37. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. In November 2010, in San Diego, California.